This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. today at <laughs> 7 30 p.m that's really really close to when it just becomes going to bed i don't know if i'm ever gonna sleep again welcome to overdue it's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name's andrew and this isn't did you have like additional did you have another thing you wanted to talk about did you have some like skewed observational humor about your nap that you're going to talk about it's just that you took a nap just that this i don't know what time zone i'm in for this particular podcast if i slip into a different time zone midway through it's because you took a bad nap it's because i took a bad i took a bad nap one of those bad naps those naps that feel like sleep but then you stop them or like you wait, or you wake. See the worst kind of nap. Here's the here's what the worst kind of nap hey, man, is. We're so gonna, welcome we're gonna to talk to, about this week's book, Mystic River. To, but to nap nap review. There's a nap for that. Our <laughs> podcast about naps. <laughs> the worst is when you fall asleep around seven thirty, and then you wake up at like three, and then you're just up. <laughs> yeah. Then you just That's select. the worst kind of nap. That, I also don't have any kind of like follow up anything or like a place for the conversation to go. It's just like here's some stuff I think about naps. I just wanted everyone to know that that like that's how I'm operating right now. Mm-hmm. You know, just like so that people understand. So when the podcast is bad, blame it on your bad nap is what you're saying. Yeah, like now. So let's get into it. <laughs> Boy, it's a good one. Some good content, some primo content so far. Every week, one of us reads a book that we've never read before and tells it, tells about it to the other one who yep. is maybe sometimes read it, but it's not part of the thing. It's not Craig, part of the requirements. No, no, it's not part of the requirements. Craig, what book did you read? I read My Mystic Man. River by Dennis Lehane. This was a Patreon recommendation from Andrea. Thank you, Andrea, for that. Um, Find more about that at patreon.com slash overdue pod. But that's why I read this book. I've never read this book. This was a movie. That's yeah, that's the conceit oh of the God. entire podcast. Blame the nap. Um it, it was, was a it was a two thousand three film, yeah, which uh is directed and and scored by Clint Eastwood. Wait, scored by Clint Eastwood? I wrote scored? Is that right? Does he do movie music? It's what I wrote, but is that right? I don't that's right. <laughs> What did I mean to type? I don't know. It was scored by him. Wikipedia says it was scored by him. I don't Whoa. know. I, I've not watched the movie, but this is in his like pre-yelling at an empty chair phase. <laughs> the movie stars Sean Penn, Tim Robbins, Kevin Bacon, Lawrence Fishburne, Marsha Gay Harden, and Laura Linney. Oh, star-studded cast, and it was pretty well, well received. Roger Ebert is one of the one of the many critics who liked it. Yes, and um. We can talk about his review later if it helps the conversation. Oh, the cool. But um, yeah, th- we got a couple tweets this week that were like, I didn't know this was a book. 
Yeah, following right. up on last week's Yaya, where folks were yeah, like, yeah. I know about that movie. I have opinions about that movie. Didn't know it was a book. So and same the thing the ghost here. of a southern woman, <laughs> Yaya. <laughs> so we'll talk a little bit about Dennis Lehane uh, before we get into the book. Yeah, Who old Denny, guy, what do you want to say about old, old Denny Lehane? What's what? What do you know about him? Denny was born in 1965 and has mostly spent his life in the Boston area. That's the setting for many of his novels. Um, he's written a bunch of bunch of novels, just like a ton of novels. And it was like, um, what was it? It was one a year every year between 1994 and 2003. That's a lot of books. It's a lot of books, and then he, he took five years to write. A, a book called The Given Day. This is from a Guardian interview I, I read with him. Okay. Um, he took five years to work on that one single book, which is five times the amount of time that he normally takes. And um, he, he said, I feel like if this bombs, God, it's going to be my heaven's gate, my water world. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what it's like when you go from writing at a Stephen King pace to writing at like a Jonathan Safran four pace. Sure. Um, he also is a really prolific TV writer, so he joined the writing staff of The Wire in season three. Um, he wrote for Boardwalk Empire. Did you see he, he even had a cameo in season three? Yeah, of the he Wire? was like a, a, a requisitions officer or something yes, in The Wire. Yeah. Um, yeah, he says of, of his experience writing on The Wire, we were sure season four was going to be our last season, and that's why it's the best. <laughs> Um, he also wrote the screenplay for The Drop, which was the uh, last movie that James Gandolfini was in. Wait, really? Yeah. The Drop? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I thought he, I thought that other movie that he was in where he was like, want to be in a relationship. With Julia Louis-Dreyfus? Yeah, well, that's a good movie, but I thought that I was I haven't seen it, I think, but this is, I think, it might have been the last like release movie that oh, James Gandolfini sure. was in. Sure. Um. So that's like Denny's deals. He writes a lot for TV and for novels. Yeah, his parents. <laughs> good. Uh, his parents both emigrated to the Boston area from Ireland. Um, he went to college and then got his master's in writing and and like fiction or something. And he's done some. He's taught some fiction writing classes, yeah, including um, at, at Harvard, since he. Since he hit it big, um, he's also had a lot of his books turned into movies. Yes. So Mystic River is one. Um, Gone Baby Gone, which I always confuse with the Violent Femmes song Gone Daddy Gone. And they're I two always, different things. Yes, I also confuse it with Million Dollar Baby and Gone Girl. <laughs> uh, gone Girl Gone. That movie is actually based on the fourth book in a series um, that is connected to his first book, A Drink Before the War, which is 1994. Mm -hmm. um, he also wrote Shutter Island. Yeah, Shutter Island, which I didn't even remember was a thing that exi <laughs> that existed until I read about it. Yeah, that was a Leo DiCaprio film, like a Scorsese yeah. joint, right? Yeah, one of the one of the uh, like the Bronze Age DiCaprio flicks. Did he finally get his Oscar? Did he? I don't know. Man, he really he was hungry for it for so long. Did he get did he get Titanic Oscar? He did not get a Titanic. Who got a Titanic Oscar? Oscar? No, I don't no think one? he did. Okay, <laughs> I think some people did. I don't think Leo did. Mm -hmm. Um, I found an interview with Lehane where uh, with the Observer where he's talking about he's talking about this movie he made with Ben Affleck called 
live by night or God, live by I guess night. if you make a movie that's set in Boston, you have to like contractually, you have to do it with Ben Affleck. <laughs> like he has a right of first refusal on any movies that are set in Boston. Well, Affleck was part of the adaptation of Gone Baby Gone too, so they're maybe they're just good pals now. Um, but he says w- on Wicked Cat and the Garden. <laughs> on film adaptations um the weirdest thing about this sort of stuff is that unless it is blatantly wrong you just never know what to think if i see a film version of one of my books in which they clearly clearly did not get it then i'll go okay well this sucks but everything else no idea to this day i have no idea how i feel about mystic river i don't know how i feel about shutter island i just go on faith i sit there and say wow well this looks great there are great performances He has said um, he has never wanted to write the screenplays for the movies based on his own books because, quote, he has no desire to operate on his own child. He's got a way. (laughs) He's got a way. A bit of a voice he does, which I appreciate. Um, Uh, But yeah, that's that's it. What else about old Denny? I think that's his deal. That's Denny's deal. Denny's deal. The new book. By Dennis the Lane. new the deal at Denny's where you, you buy three Grand Slam breakfast for the price of two. So and and then last thing before we talk about the book is sure. we don't like Wikipedia is not where our author research ends, but it is often where it starts. And his Wikipedia article has some extremely Wikipedia sentences. Oh, in it. sure, okay. Lahane married Sheila Lawn, formerly an advocate for the elderly for the city of Boston, but by 2007, working with the Suffolk, Suffolk County District Attorney's Office as an assistant district attorney. They divorced. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> Here's way too much information about a person, followed by something we probably should have led with. Uh, Lahane also, uh, he lost his beagle, Tessa, in the fall of 2012 and is continuing the search for her. That is my favorite Wikipedia type thing where it is clearly a time capsule that no one has updated. But it makes it sound like every night he's out there at the flashlight in 2018 looking for this beagle. Could you imagine if in your Encyclopedia Britannica article, in a printed book, it said, dude is still looking for his beagle. He's still looking for his dog. That would be enshrined on people's shelves. See, that's that's why encyclopedias used to have real editors. <laughs> because space on a page costs money and you can't just have whatever about Waluigi or Dennis Lehane or whoever in your encyclopedia. There wasn't an unlimited space. And yeah. And if you can point to like a time where he mentioned it on Twitter or in an interview, like it's real. So it belongs in there. If I had Denny Lehane here right now to ask yeah. any question, I'd sure. Be like, hey, uh, you still, you still looking for that dog? <laughs> hey, Denny, Did you get it. Did you get a new dog yet? How's your dog? Oh, you still lighting dog. a candle for that? You got candle lit for that dog still? Fill that bowl every day. I do, just in case. <laughs> Wait, who, how does it get empty? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, Mystic River about a river, I assume. That's the book. It's about a magic river. It's not. Is this though? how? Does it have anything to do with Mystic Pizza? What is Mystic Pizza about? It's a movie about a pizza. Or, I, no, I don't know. <laughs> I, so I can't tell you if it has anything to do with Mystic Pizza because I don't know anything about Mystic Pizza. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you that it is about a town area of Boston. Oh, like the town. Like the town. 
Um, for, I think one of the things about Lehane that probably I can't speak to, um, but probably actually you can see it in the fact that he's worked with Ben Affleck a bunch probably, is that there's probably a bunch of Boston movies and stories and like stuff that you have seen or been exposed to that is likely drawing inspiration from Lehane, even if you haven't read him. Like I Wait, feel say that like again. he is probably a progenitor of some of this like town esque crime fiction. Do you think he's the progenitor of it or well, he's not... just like part of the same wave? Yeah, progenitor is probably not the right word. But yeah, progenitor in- implies like a he cause in- and effect. Well that he invented it. That yes, he, he came up with the town that Ben Affleck was like Man, your Boston-based crime fiction is great. I gotta get me a piece of that. Sure. Where's John Ham? What's he doing? Sure. The town. Um, but I I think there's I don't know. I I would be interested to know uh who else finds his early work as an inspiration. I know he has been cited as by Tana French as an inspiration for some of her work, even though that's oh, neato. Like the the small townness of it, and I think there is a a. Per- Particularity to uh, particularity is not a word. What was that word that you said just now? I don't know, but there is a small town within a city vibe that I think I mean, certainly like a neighborhood. Yeah, but is that a word that you're looking um, for? Smaller than Mr. a particularity. Smaller than a borough, bigger than a neighborhood. Um, in in the way that. I just associate that with fiction set in Boston. I don't know why. Like kind of that towny vibe. I think it's just it's so hard to get anywhere that you just kind of maybe <laughs> you just give not, up. <laughs> f- you're not familiar with anywhere that you can't like walk to because sure. it's just really hard to drive anywhere. That's very possible. I bring all all of this garbage uh podcast to say that we are in a small like area of southeast Boston that is fictional. Um, but it's clearly inspired by little towny places like it. Um, we're in a small area called East Buckingham. Um, yeah, I don't know. And the book, if you do not know, is a murder mystery of sorts. Um, will probably. What do you mean of sorts? Like, is there a murder? There is a murder. There is are... there a mystery about it? Yes. Then it's a murder mystery. Sure. It does not <laughs> feel like an Agatha Christie murder mystery. It feels more like a uh, like law and order, but with some insight into the human condition. Kind it's of a law and order. I don't okay. Sure. <laughs> uh so the first section of the book takes place in the nineteen seventies. And then the rest of it takes place in the year 2000. Which, in, when this book was published, would have been a year in the past. Sure, sure. Which probably means he's just, it's contemporaneous to when he was writing it. Right. Just the way you said it made it sound like it was a, it was in the future. Well, it's in the future for the characters, sort right. of. Um, I'm just like we're watching Quantum Leap right now, <laughs> and the future the future year in Quantum Leap is 1999. Oh dear! But they've already made references to like the Soviet Union still existing. And Whoops! Stuff. <laughs> um, Maybe that's one of the one of the things that Doctor Sam Beckett has to leap and correct. 
Oh dear. Okay. Is the is the no? I just I'm making that up. Oh, See, don't respond to it got, as if it actually got happened. Me. <laughs> um, so the opening of the book, we meet three young boys: Sean, Jimmy, and Dave. And good names. They are good, <sighs> memorable names. They're friends, sort of. Like much is made at the beginning of the book that Sean and Jimmy hang out like once a week on Saturdays because their dads both work at the same like candy factory or something and they blow off steam together and so Sean and Sean and Jimmy like hang out while their dads are hanging out um Sean is from the nicer area of East Buckingham called the point and Jimmy and Dave are both from the flats um and rarely the twain shall meet there's like a whole class divide thing going on there even though they're only like 12 blocks apart um and Dave is like the outsider of the group. He just kind of shows up and they tolerate him. When uh, he's first introduced, I, this line caught me. Um, and they'd hang out sometimes with Dave Boyle, a kid with girls' wrists and weak eyes who was always telling jokes he'd learned from his uncles. And he goes on to say that Dave didn't have a father, just a lot of uncles. And he had a gift for attaching himself to Jimmy like lint. So already Lahane is, and at this point, it's not necessarily from any one of the boys' point of view. It's a little bit from Sean's. But like Lahane is setting up Dave to be othered, right? He's setting him up to not be a normal boy. Um, weaker is what's implied there. Right. Um, Both in terms of his own characteristics and his family relationships. Yes. Yes. Um, And there's, we got a scene where like Jimmy is the, like the no good Nick of the group. And he like, they're at the subway or whatever the Boston calls the subway. Um, uh, Is that the T the the T is that the train or are they stand for train? (laughs) They're at a train. They're are at they a, at the T or are they at Subway? Mm. Do Subways have third rails that you don't want to touch? I mean, yeah. <laughs> have you had the wheat bread at a Subway? <laughs> yeah. It's the third so. rail that exists between like white and the like the cheese kind. The rosemary Actually, cheese I think kind. the third rail might be pizza at a Subway. Ooh, they do yeah. offer pizza. So that's, yeah, it's a bad scene. Jimmy drops his like tennis ball or something that he's playing with down in the train tracks and he like jumps down to get it and everyone at the train station's freaking out and he's just being like whatever, I'm going to get it and then they finally pull him up there before a train can come by and there's this moment where everyone goes from like, "Oh yeah, we saved this kid" to like, "Yo, why that kid do that? You I hate stupid this stupid kid, Jimmy yeah. kid." <laughs> and uh, cut to a scene where Sean is getting lectured from his dad. Like, I don't really want you hanging out with that kid. Your mom doesn't like it. So if you are going to hang out with him, you have to do it around our house. You have to stay safe. That kid is trouble. And I was, Did you I, have a friend like that? I, I had that question for you, too. I don't I didn't have an explicit like trouble friend, though. The Andrew that I was close friends with 
uh, I've, I've known a lot of Andrews. The Andrew that I was close friends with uh, who lived across the street from me, he was more likely to get into trouble than I was. He okay. was a little feistier. Um, he's the kid whose house I was at when we had to... It was not a thing that Andrew did, but we were witness to a kid peeing on a playground, and we had to oh, talk no. to the cops about it because he, he had defamed public property. Uh, that was cool. Stuff just kind of happened over at over at that house sometimes. Um, did you have yeah. a no good Nick friend? I don't. I don't think I had a friend that my parents were like specifically worried about me hanging out with. My cousin Randy was a bad egg. Uh oh. Just like getting into spats and stuff. Yeah, he just like he had like a chain. Oh, like a chain on his jeans, like a wallet chain. <laughs> I think so. I don't know. It's just a chain and like black jeans. Okay, you know that aesthetic. Yeah. Uh, he's just I don't know, and he's still out there. Maybe he's like fine and he's listening. <laughs> but uh, I feel like maybe Randy was fine. He just liked that look. You okay? You could beg to differ, though. I just, I don't know. Sure, I don't know what the deal with Randy was. Okay, <laughs> don't my cousin. We Randy. all ask that question. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't have a specific like. Don't hang out with that kid. But there were certainly folks I knew who were like, "Oh, if you're if you're with that person, uh, you might like do some stuff you're not normal. You wouldn't normally do on your own. Like you might just be a little more willing to like." you know not necessarily get into trouble but just kind of yeah, like no, that's because that's how peer pressure work yeah yeah um, like when i uh-oh. only started riding roller coasters when i went to cedar point with a kid from church who was a couple years older than me and to that point i did not really like roller coasters but because i wanted to seem cool i was like yeah i love roller coasters oh no and then i discovered that i did love roller coasters well that's a good story that ended up good it did end up good, but it could have ended up bad. What if instead of roller coasters, it was like breaking into houses? Or like cocaine. Yeah, that's that's the bad peer pressure. So That's the bad kind. So it's a good thing it was about coasties and not yes. drugs. Good that we're talking about peer pressure because then the next time we see these kids, Jimmy has decided that he wants to steal a car. Now they are 11 and he wants to take a car and drive it around the block. Can his feet even reach the pedals? They'll they'll, fig- they'll get phone books, they say, so that they could like sit closer or put the phone books under their feet. Oh, yeah, I get I it. I guess phone it books would work. Are just heavy. Yeah. yeah. And so they're going to steal a car. Sean Box. He doesn't want to steal a car. Yeah, they're going to steal a car. And pack it in the garden. <laughs> and Sean doesn't want to do it. And Dave all of a sudden is like, Yo, Sean, why are you being a coward? And like punches him, and Sean punches Dave back and like knocks him flat on the ground. And because he's like, Why did Dave punch me? Like, come on, Dave. And then Jimmy starts fighting Sean, and they're all fighting in the street. And then these two cops roll up and they're like, Hey, what are you kids doing? You should be fighting in the street. Uh, where are you from? And they tell him that they're from, you know, the point and the flats. And they're like, hey, you, you get in the car. Come with us. And Dave gets in the car. And they tell 
Jimmy and Sean to just like go home and like think about what you did and tell your parents that these cops yelled at you. So I've forgotten which little white boy is which. So which so one is the like the the Dave is the weaker one. Sean the weak is one the one with the wrists. Yes, Sean is the good one from the from the rich part of town and Jimmy is the troublemaker. Okay, so and which one got put Dave, in the car? Dave gets in the car because Dave he gets he car. doesn't really like stand up to the cops. And they tell him to get in, and he gets in right away. He doesn't say boo. And uh, that, would weird, that would be a weird thing to say to cops. Come That's on, probably why. And uh, Jimmy and Sean go back to their parents. I, th- they know like one of one of their parents is like, "Hey, did you like see their badges? Like, did you actually? What did their what did any of their stuff say? Like, they were just in a plain car, and." They're like, oh, we actually can't remember if their badge said anything, and they call the cops, and it was definitely not cops, and two dudes just took Dave. And four- Why'd they take Dave instead of taking three kids? One is easier to handle. Okay. I suppose. All right. And four days later, Dave does come back. He did escape. Um... He doesn't really want to talk about what happened, though it's pretty clear that there was some sort of assault that happened to him. Um, And it does this thing, and this is a trope I've seen in other fiction, even when it's not like a, a explicit like child molestation incident, but just like a kid who survives an incident becomes a weird pariah because kids don't know how to handle that. Yeah. Um, Like you even see it a little bit in... Uh, season two of Stranger Things. Something like the, the what's the kid that got taken by Will? Mo- Will, yeah. Like when he comes back and everyone's like, "Oh, you're the freak boy who died, but didn't really." And it like instead of him coming back to a normal life, he is still othered in a way that's really problematic for him. Yeah, Lane. Like in the in in, in the interviews I read, he seemed interested in the ways that like stuff that happens to you when you're a kid affects you for the rest of your life, and also like stuff that happens to your family stays with you for the rest of your life so i'm kind of curious to hear how that plays out in the yes. rest of the book so dave uh, we get a little bit of this in the in this early section of the book and then it comes back later he talks about kind of like separating himself from the person that was taken and he he kind of refers to it almost in storybook terms as like the boy who got stolen with like inner caps or the boy who escaped um he doesn't use the names of the men. He refers to them as like big wolves um, just to kind of like mentally protect himself. But in a way that you can tell is is an altering of reality rather than like actually grappling with what happened. Right. Right. Um, he gets ragged on in school for uh, maybe being gay or, uh, you know, liking what happened to him or it's like really horrible stuff. That's yeah, that it's sucks. really bad. Um, and he ultimately, you find out later in the book that he powered through it by like becoming really good at baseball and just became a super jock, and people couldn't like touch him anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's clear that that did not actually help him emotionally because he's still kind of like sectioned that part of himself off. Like, well, because it's still like an avoidance mechanism and not yes. a coping with that yes. mechanism. Um, Jimmy becomes, like, Jimmy just, like, drops Dave after that. He's like, oh, well, Dave's damaged goods. I'm 
going to go off and continue to be a no good Nick and like steal cars and get in with this group of boys whose last name is literally Savage and everyone refers to them as the Savages and we're going to run thieving until I get locked in jail. All right, good call, Jimmy. And Sean is like still the good kid who dreams of what if it had happened to him? What if he'd gotten in the car? And a year later after the incident, his dad like walks in his room. He's like, oh, you got into this prestigious high school. Good for you. Also, I heard from someone that they caught one of the guys who took Dave. And when they caught him, he said that the other guy had died in a car accident. You're safe. So be fine. And then his dad like walks out of the room. Just like, assuming that those two guys are the only two guys who in could the ever, entire world yes. who could ever do anything bad to anybody. And, and well, and, and the book, like, in that moment, it's presented as, like, it should be some psychic weight off of Sean's mind. Because he's like, if those guys are out there, they could still take me. I saw them. I know them. But obviously, like, Lahane knows that it's not as simple as that. <clears throat> Yeah. So then that's the whole first part of the book. And then we jump into the future. Okay. So that, that was the seventies part and yes. now we're in the year 2000. And the bulk of the book takes place in the year 2000. Um, we cut to a kid named Brendan Harris, who is in love with Katie Marcus and Katie Marcus is Jimmy's daughter. And I liked this quote. There's some like, this is like the first line of that section. Brenda's, Brendan Harris loved Katie Marcus like crazy. Loved her like movie love with an orchestra booming through his blood and flooding his ears. And it goes on to like how he loves even all sorts of stuff that he hates because he's in love with Katie and they're going to run away to Vegas together. Even That's though, definitely, definitely sustainable. <laughs> yes. They're both like 19 and they're going to run away to Vegas and no one knows. Not even her ex-boyfriend who refuses to accept that he's her ex. Uh, but he's a nice guy and she loves him and everything's going to be fine. What do you think's going to happen, Andrew? I bet everything isn't going to be fine. No. Uh, <laughs> so the uh, Katie is not going to make it. And that is the central mystery of the book. Not going to make it in what sense? Katie. Like she's not going to like make it in the big city. She's <laughs> not going to live. She's not going to live. Okay. So, but so she's also not going to make it in the big city. <laughs> Correct, Mundo. <laughs> she's not going to have it all. No, it's too bad. Um, so we meet. We get reintroduced to Jimmy and Dave before Katie beefs it, and Jimmy is now thirty six. Um, at thirty six. Gross. I know. Ew, I don't want to get there. <laughs> uh, Jimmy Marcus had come to love the quiet of his Saturday nights. He had no use for loud, packed bars and drunken confessions. 13 years since he'd walked out of prison, and he owned a corner store, had a wife and three daughters at home, and believed he'd traded the wired-up boy he'd been for a man who appreciated an even pace to his life, a slowly sipped beer, a morning stroll, the sound of a baseball game on the radio. Boy, I do fully get not wanting to go out to bars anymore. Yes. Do you want to? Do you want to just like cards on the table? What did you do on Friday night? I went to the gym and cleaned the house. What did I do on Friday? I don't remember. I was probably I was home by myself. I went to the gym because Laura was out, and I right. hung out and like I read this book. <laughs> Like mm -hmm. I had a beer and read this book. That sounds great. It though. was amazing. That sounds really good. <laughs> so maybe thirty six is gonna be great, Andrew. 
Maybe 36 will be really great. Oh, man. Let's check in when we get there. I mean, it sounds like I'm there already. Oh. So maybe maybe I'll be in a scary place by 36. <laughs> but I get young James's point of view. So here, and, and you said um, that the thing from Lahane about being interested in like your childhood versus your adulthood. And that's a huge part of this book is like who yeah so he's yeah he's he's interested in that and then i wanted to read a quick thing he said about like class and race oh sure um and we'll just like if it if it comes up in the book fine we can talk about it but if not it's just an interesting perspective that i think cool i've been thinking about a lot um he says i believe from a very young age that all race warfare is essentially class warfare and that it's in the better interests of the haves to have the have-nots fighting among themselves and i believe that to this day it's probably the strongest socialist tenet that i have sure so that's from that guardian interview that he uh so yeah let's hop to dave real quick because this is actually will get me to a spot that interacts with that quote um, dave is the taken baseball dave is the boy, boy who was taken Mm-hmm. He is now Boy married, who lived, but didn't do great. Yes, um, it's a Harry Potter. <laughs> he is married uh, to a woman named Celeste. He's actually married to the cousin of Jimmy's wife, um, which is like an interesting coincidence. Like nobody gets out of this town; everybody's connected. Um, and Dave uh, is not happy in his marriage. Um, he like. He goes out Saturday night because um, his wife is having girls' night, which means that they watch like a chick movie. And I just want to read you this sentence that Dave thinks about chick movies because it's a it's a real sentence. Uh, they capped off the evening by watching some chick movie that was usually about some driven but lonely career woman who found true love and Big D with some baggy bald old cow hand. <laughs> Or else it was about two chicks who discovered the meaning of womanhood and the depths of their friendship just before one of them caught some illness in the third act, died all beautiful, and perfectly quaffed on a bed the size of Peru. Yeah, yeah. And then when his wife, like, kisses him goodbye before he leaves and you get this real, like, succinct moment of his unhappiness he finished his beer and kissed celeste a small milky curdle rippling through his stomach as she grabbed his butt and kissed him back hard and like just this like he is not into this life he's not okay that's a gross way to feel when your wife grabs your butt yeah yeah so dave is uh dave and so i'm not like i okay so a couple reasons i don't like dave (laughs) sure one he is kind of making fun of the thing that you and I did last night, which was hang out and play Nintendo Switch yeah. while our wives watched Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> True. And two, he's not he's not part of that, you know, he wants to go out to a bar still. He's not he's not part of that stay hashtag staying in life. Yes, he is not hashtag staying in life. And he needs to just get out. Like he likes his son, but he and Celeste are not great. And it sounds like he is not great. Well, Celeste sounds yes. fine. <laughs> well, so um, he, Dave is also where we get introduced to some of the uh, changing of the, like, changing of the times anxiety. Like, there's a lot of gentrification in this area of Buckingham where the word yuppies gets used a lot. A lot of complaining about L.L. Bean and gourmet coffee shops and people with tiny dogs moving in 
and like yeah that's that's interesting because he's like having grown up in the city in the 70s he would have had occasion to like witness white flight and now he's coming around to an era where it starts to reverse itself and i'm just kind of curious how that and he's he's, how that makes him feel about his his neighborhood which he seems very tightly attached to he is renting an apartment and the guy who owns the apartment is like listen i'm probably gonna have to sell this thing soon because all of the rents and taxes are going up because everybody's buying everything up and like refurbishing it and uh, this is a little bit what of what that Lahane quote is about, like the haves and the have-nots. It's not necessarily a race thing because this is primarily like white Irish Boston, mm-hmm. um, this section of the city. But they're still dealing with a younger generation of greater means coming in and taking their their town out from under them. Um, we also later get a snippet of Celeste where she is talking about how her and Dave like don't have uh, like college degrees and they can only get the work that they can get. And she hears on the news all the time about how unemployment is really low and everyone's doing great. But she knows that that's actually really only for skilled labor and, you know, jobs that people are are willing to temp um and not have like benefits and stuff like that Mm -hmm. so it it was interesting to read this through our modern like dialogue and the the framing of things like economic anxiety and how that's be it's become and i I say that because it's become a, a euphemism um, in the year 2018 based on right. the past two years here in America. Mm-hmm. But this is like an interesting depiction of it for real and uh, where it like warps some folks' world. Um, so it's just interesting to encounter it in a, in, a, in a well-drawn character, like well-drawn characters that doesn't feel like shorthanded and it feels yeah, wrapped right, into other things that they're dealing with. Lahane is, is interesting because I think he came from this kind of background yeah, but then yeah. since he's found all the success has, has become rich. And he, he thinks about that a lot. He thinks about, you know, this, this could change me. This could make me into a really like, like a person who I wouldn't have liked. Mm, interesting. And so, so he has that going on, but then he has, um, he has something like this quote, which again is from that Guardian interview. Uh, Having been poor for a long time, when the money started rolling in, he explicitly warned himself, you could become a real dick. <laughs> the greatest thing about having money, he says, is the removal of the worry about not having it. Mm. Uh, quote, and that's huge. As anyone who's ever stared at the ringing phone thinking that's a debt collector or had that horror at thinking, will my lights go on? Well, no. All of which I've been through. Suddenly that was gone. So, yeah, that's real. Yeah, and and... Almost everyone in this book, save for some of the cops, and I won't even say all of the cops, because um, we spent a lot of time with uh, Sean, uh, one of the third of the boys who has now grown up and is a homicide detective. Um, he starts working Katie's murder, and we get a lot of the of the police work. But save for some of them, like almost everyone either knows or has knows someone who has or is someone who has done crime like and a a mix of it is just like stealing random stuff from trucks and then fencing it for cash it's not 
necessarily like mafia levels of organized crime. Yeah, right. It's like petty, petty it's stuff. It's a lot of petty larceny, and and it, but it's the need is regular enough that everyone dips into it. Yeah. Um, so that that kind of is the undercurrent of this book, and and explains how a lot of stuff goes down. Um, so we we get a couple things at the beginning of this section. Um, I'm going to skip, end up skipping over most of the middle of the book, and then I'll yeah. talk about kind of how it winds down with some spoilery stuff, because I think it's yeah, what do you, sells do that, the book. Yeah, and then we'll, we'll talk about some thematic stuff and sure. some things you, you said you wanted to talk about. Yeah. Um, so we've got uh, Jimmy and Dave in, reintroduced in the present day. We get a section of Katie having her like de facto bachelorette going away party with her two girlfriends. They are the only two people that we meet who know of her plan to run away to Vegas with Brendan. And they have a run in with this guy named Roman Fallow, who is a, (laughs) who is a friend, which he's either made up or he hosts like a PRX podcast. (laughs) Like those are the only two things you can be with that name. Yes. It's like a pseudonymous, like PI or a podcast host. And he is a close, a friend of Bobby O'Donnell, who is Katie's ex-boyfriend that is kind of upset that they're an ex. And uh, he like runs in with her and is like, oh, I don't like that you're like out here getting drunk and partying. Bobby wouldn't like that. And she's like, we aren't, I'm not with Bobby anymore. Shut up, go away. Mm-hmm. And then she takes her friend. So it kind of ruins the party. They're kind of drunk. And so th- she drives them home. And then on her way back to her, her house, she sees something in the road, swerves to avoid it, hits a curb, and uh, someone starts walking up to her, and she thinks she recognizes them, and then that person has a gun, and we cut away. Classic. Classic. And then the book does a major head fake where we go back to Dave, who is also out the night that Katie is out. He does overlap with Katie at the second to last bar she goes to um, and he is like alone watching baseball on TV this is where the book I tweeted this out the book dragged me to hell for liking sports um, because Dave is just thinking about how like sports is you demanding that a team win for all of the things in your life that you don't like <laughs> Uh-huh. And then when it loses, like your hope dies. And I was uh-huh. like, well, okay. Um he My understanding of Boston is that they have strong opinions about Boston based sports do. teams. Yes, <laughs> they actually do. Um and he has this night out and then cut to Celeste, uh his wife waiting up kind of upset about just things and thinking about him and he comes in i'm team celeste the entire way i hope you know yeah there's going to be a turn that's that i'm interested to get your reaction to he comes in at three in the morning and there's blood all over him and he has gotten cut in his abdomen and he tells her that he beat up a mugger and may have killed him um and she's like all right and part of his story involves the mugger literally saying, your wallet or your life, I'm leaving with one of them. 
which she doesn't buy for a second. No, that's really clumsy dialogue. Yes. <laughs> uh, but she can't quite call him out on it in the moment because he's all like kind of jacked up on adrenaline and he's literally yeah, did, bleeding. I mean, did he just not expect any follow up questions? He hasn't gotten there yet. Um, right. And so she finds herself like disposing of his clothes and uh like washing him down the kitchen sink and then sure. like cleaning becoming out, uh, becoming an accomplice and surely like cleaning out the pipes with bleach so that there's no blood in them or brains in them because he definitely like beat a guy's head in he says um though she does see the news report when the cops find katie in the park and she does worry that maybe it was Dave. And so the book does a pretty good job, Lahane, throughout the book, of not giving you enough information on what Dave did that you are both suspicious of him and fairly certain that it is not him. Like, I'm, I spent the entire experience of the book wondering how it was going to not be him like does it just it does it feel like it would be too simple for it to be him like the the book has to have some kind of trick up its sleeve or else it wouldn't be so obvious about it yeah and that dave has other stuff going on and there's like there's a whole other element to like the car like him being spotted in a parking lot and another car getting towed away that ends up having a body in the trunk and but all that comes out pretty late, and in the meantime, you get these like snippets of Dave thinking about that night, and Dave getting interrogated by the police, but they don't really have actual details that link is this, him. Is this like a Gone Girl thing where you're in the head of the character who did this thing, but he refuses to think specifically about what he did, and so you, the reader, are kept in suspense? There is some of that, and it that, is, I it is done well. I know when when you like. When you lean back from it, you're like, hmm. I, I think Lahane populates the book with enough other interesting characters that you you don't spend as much time as you might think with Dave. And I think because sure, Gone, Gone Girl, like the entire yes. first half of that book, is spent with somebody who's like plotting something, but you who's don't like know plotting something yeah. or just like thinking about a crime that happened, but he never thinks I definitely didn't do this. <laughs> And so something else must be going on. Yeah. And so part of the tension with Dave, too, is when he does get brought in by Sean. Wait, which is Dave, too? We got a whole other Dave <laughs> <Sorry>. in here? <laughs> Wait a second. Um, part of the tension with Dave is that he is also very aware that Jimmy and Sean, like, cut him out of their lives. Like, the stuff went down when he was a kid. Jimmy went off and was a criminal for a couple of years. His wife... Uh, died. Katie's mom died of cancer while he was in jail, and then he remarried uh, Annabeth and had two other daughters. Um, Sean had a wife, and then his marriage is currently that he's separated through most of the book. They had a falling out, um, but like Dave has just not really been a through line for either of them in the same way. And so, especially when he is confronted by Sean and the police investigation, um, there's a resentment to Sean that plays into him not really 
even to the reader divulging enough information for you to exonerate him. Like he's being sure. cagey and sort of aggressive with Sean on purpose. That but is, there's a reason for that yeah. built into the narrative. So it doesn't yes. feel super forced. Okay, Correct. That's interesting. Correct. All right. Um, so I'm skipping over um, a bunch of stuff that has to do with how they find Katie's body. And yeah, do that. Cause we gotta, we, we gotta, gotta wrap up. Wrap um, up. The main suspects are, Roman Fallow and Bobby O'Donnell. Roman Fallow. Or maybe they like hired someone to do it. Um, another suspect is actually Brendan Harris, the guy that she was supposed to run away with. Um, he's being sort of weird and suspicious about it, but that's mostly, I think, because he w- had the secret plan to run away with her <laughs> and no one's really <laughs> happy about it. Mm-hmm. Um, Harris's dad, whose name was Ray... Uh, goes back with Jimmy a ways, and actually Jimmy went to jail because Ray like narked on him. Are you Jimmy Ray? <laughs> and well, actually, Ray's nickname is just Ray because <laughs> there are a bunch of other criminal Rays who had nicknames, and so his was just Ray. The criminal just... Rays sounds like a bad <laughs> like minor league baseball team, <laughs> possibly uh, from Boston. Possibly actually. from Boston. Um, and then the other main suspect is Dave Dave Boyle, um, our our Dave, and he he like his hand is messed up, and the cops notice that he's told multiple stories. His car is dented, and it matches the idea of someone saw him in the parking lot. So again, like there's a lot of misdirection around Dave's involvement that I think is pretty artfully done. So the the middle of the book is a lot of them figuring this out a lot of them different characters going back and forth celeste ends up and this will take us into spoiler town so if okay. you're like super into mystic river um and you like can't believe to know like you can't bear to know what happens like i guess pause this go read the book and come back but thus the spoiler town i do want with it, ben affleck i do want to tell you um and i think it's worth kind of knowing how the, how the book does this so um, Celeste, who is overcome with guilt about what she thinks she knows about Dave and the circumstantial evidence pointing him to being guilty, she goes and tells Jimmy directly. Um, and Jimmy hooks up with the savages um, and they decide to do something about it. So they get Dave all liquored up. They take him to a bar that's on Mystic River and they ice him. Um, before that happens, Dave tells the truth, and here's what actually happened. There are other circumstantial things that in the book that point to this. There was a guy okay. in a parking lot who was soliciting sex from like this 11 year old boy who was like working in you know the sex prostitution trade that's happening in this crummy town. Yikes! And Dave sees it happening. Kind of has a an episode. Um, with the part of himself that he tries to keep hidden and he beats the guy to death. Um, And before he does that, the guy stabs him and that's how he gets hurt. Uh, Jimmy doesn't buy it, of course. So he Mm -hmm. tells Dave to confess and he'll let him live. Dave is like, all right, well, I'm going to lie and say that I did it so that you let me live. And Jimmy kills him anyway. And he reveals that he also killed Brendan's dad. Um, many years ago for the whole mm-hmm. narking thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's how Dave gets done. And it's really kind of sad and awful. Um, but of course, Dave didn't do it. 
the person who did it, and I haven't really gotten a chance to talk about this, is it's Brendan's brother, um, who's also named Ray. Uh, he, a lot of Rays in this town, I know. huh? Um, Ray's, Brendan's younger brother, Ray, who is mute. He does not talk, but he can hear. Um, and he signs throughout the book. Um, he has this friend, Johnny O'Shea, and he and Johnny O'Shea play hockey all the time. That is just the Bostonist name I have ever heard. And he and Johnny O'Shea play hockey in the street all the time. And the way that Brendan figures out that they were involved is that he knows his dad's old gun was in the house, um, but it's gone missing. And he realizes that Ray must have taken it um, at the same time that the cops realized that the two, that the boys who made the 911 call made like a verbal slip in responding to the 911 operator about asking for their names. And they thought that they said her name, which they say out loud. And it's like, yo, how would you know that unless you killed this girl? Um, So there's this climactic scene where Brendan's beating up his brother, Johnny O'Shea pulls out the gun. Remember, he's like 11 or 12 or some mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. And the cops, Sean and his partner, come in. And I just want just to read this to you. This sure. like youth, it takes a turn into youthful nihilism as opposed to, well, like, here's a, a real pat murder, like murder she wrote reason. Sean looked into the bloody face of Johnny O'Shea, and what he saw there scared uh, scared him. There was nothing there, probably never had been. The kid wouldn't pull the trigger because he was angry or because he was scared. He'd pull the trigger because Sean was just a six-foot-two video image, and the gun was a joystick. And then the kid, like, talks about Glocks with Sean and makes a reference to a movie where he saw a guy kill a cop. Uh, and then Sean ultimately is able to disarm him. And he looks over at Ray and he says, Sean looked at the kid sniffling in the chair and the other kid, mute, looking up at them like he hoped they'd leave soon so he could get back to playing Doom in the back bedroom. Okay. And so this murder that has upturned the town and... The town. The town. As seen in the movie The Town. And brought these three boys whose lives were forever changed by an incident, like, back together in some terrible ways. Um, I thought it was gonna be that Brendan's younger brother, like, didn't want Brendan to run away with this girl. Like, I thought Mm -hmm. there was gonna be this, like, oh, that's why I did it. And no the two boys were like playing with this gun that they found. And then like someone rolled up at them, rolled up on them while they were in the street messing around. And then either they just decided to pull the gun cause they're nuts. Oh kids or like it went off and then they finished it so that they wouldn't get in trouble. And it's, then there's these lines here where it's like, Oh, these kids with their video games, who don't care about the world. It's just a, I don't, that's a weird place to end up. I feel like. Yeah. It's a weird place to end up. And then the other follow up. So Celeste obviously ratted out Dave to Jimmy before she had all the information. She couldn't, Mm -hmm. she like Dave cracks at one point and really freaks her out and makes her feel afraid for her life. So she goes to Jimmy. Jimmy comes back and tells his wife, Annabeth, 
that he has killed Dave. And he's like, what do I do? And Annabeth says, Celeste told me that she told the cops about Dave. And I thought, what kind of wife says those things about her husband? How gutless do you have to be to tell those kinds of tales out of school? And why would she tell you, Jim? Why would she run to you? Doesn't it feel like a tale out of school to me? I don't know. Maybe that's just me. And Annabeth says, I didn't, like, she's like, I didn't stop you. I had your cell phone number. I could have called you and told you not to kill him or whatever. And she goes, everyone is weak, but not us. And then she has sex with him and is like, we're like, we're (laughs) cool now. (laughs) She like wants danger murder Jimmy who did what he had to do to like avenge his daughter, even if he did it wrong, I guess, and killed an innocent man. Uh, So like a a weird, like final act turn. Yeah. Yeah. And we get a little epilogue. It had previously been like a tense, like character driven drama. And then yeah, pulls out all the stops for the last the last bit yeah and then we have a little epilogue where like jimmy is starting to be crime jimmy again um he's more comfortable like being himself in crime yeah and he like did like you know 13 years trying to live on the straight and narrow but it was all for his daughter who's dead now and now and his wife's like hey i love that you're a murderer like i love your crimes <laughs> i love your crimes uh sean does get back together with his We've wife all had that conversation with our spouses you know love me love my crimes <laughs> Please uh, hold this. Could you just get your prints on this knife for me, please? Like, it's all, like, common stuff. <laughs> and there's, like, people in the town know that Jimmy did something bad, but they can't pin it on him. And it kind of closes with Sean vowing to do something about it and hoping that Dave has finally, like, found peace that he could never find while he was alive. So... There's a lot of stuff going on, but I was really surprised by the hard turn into, like, the youths are broken, and on the one hand, that's a cool way to have your, like, from a from a craft perspective to do an unsatisfying, like, solution to the murder. Like, it's not, like, a person with a clear motive. It's not a person who was out to get something because they were wronged in some way. It's it's a messier affair. And so I, I respect that. But I also, in the moment, was like, this was a hard left field turn mm-hmm. that... I think you're mixing a couple of metaphors. But that's sure, cool. sure. Hard, you took a hard turn coming out of left field, heading for home plate. There you go. That's <laughs> and, better. And maybe. the the language that's dropped in here about like a joystick and doom does not really track, did not track for me with anything else that was brought up in the book. That that to me felt like a weird uh, kids today. I mean, we are, I think this book, I guess, was written post-Columbine, so there's some, that's in the air. Yeah. It, it, but I don't want to, I don't want to be that reductive about it, you know? It's, so, okay, so you said you wanted to talk about the the, the violence in video games yeah. discussion. So, like, what specifically did you want to hit about that? Just that it's, it came up this year. Like, it came up in a year where... In a, uh, the, our country is still failing to address this big problem, and it's. I think it's blaming the wrong things. I I think that is right. 
I I mean I think this is this is one of those areas where I do think you can find evidence to like reinforce whatever your existing yeah, viewpoint that's, is. That's, I do I mean there have been plenty of studies done that don't show like a direct link between playing violent video games and actually committing real life violence. But I think the real problem, and I think this is what you're getting at, is that um the violence of video games is sometimes and and when you talk about this here when we're talking about like the Parkland yeah shooting yep particularly video games are brought up as a scapegoat yes so that we don't have to discuss actual gun control legislation. Yeah, yeah legislation um and I don't I don't think that's always 100% of the time what is happening sure but as soon like when a mass shooting happens and it happens a lot more often than it should. Yep. Like always, always be wary of the first person who tries to blame it on anything other than guns. Yeah. Because what, what else? It's not, it's not that there couldn't be other factors. It's just that we as a society continue to like not pass gun control legislation to not like look at the role that guns play in our society. And then every time one of these things happen, we say, you know, I don't know what we can do. Like it's just with mental, mental illness, video games, like whatever you find, you find the first thing you can to deflect blame. And it just like sucks. Yeah. And so like if you, if you were actually worried about like a trial and error, like evidence-based approach to this, I think you would you would try gun legislation and then make a decision based on what how happened. well that yeah. works yeah. and that's like and, and and the debate so often this is and this is like a great uh PR triumph of the NRA and the gun lobby but like the conversation always starts somewhere else yes. it feels like yeah and so to this book in particular I I wanted to mention that because it pulled my ear reading the post columbine thing is interesting yeah because i I, now like we think about that and things have not really changed that much and those kinds of shootings like continue to happen yeah yeah um but i i bring it up because the way it feels presented in this book maybe it isn't as kind of left field as i'm reacting to it because the the like sometimes kids are just kind of bad because of the environment they're in or they act away without really thinking about the uh like cause and effect because of the of the fact that they're kids and and the system is set up that way that's real um and so that like bringing it home to to otherwise minor characters being responsible for this because they are just kind of young men who get into trouble does seem to be of a piece with the three main characters who were young men that got into trouble and it changed them forever. So like that, I think thematically fits. The book does mention that I think this gun was like acquired illegally 20 years prior. Um, But it's not, it's not dealing with what we're talking about specifically here uh, in terms of like modern gun control debates. But I think the, the cultural scapegoating that was just like, casually happening here in the language just pulled my ear 
to I think that, that was a debate that was happening because if you're, yeah, if you're no, talking no, no, about no. 2000, 2001, like you're, you're talking about a time where, I mean, it, it would seem silly in retrospect to talk about how realistic video games were, but you're talking about things that, that looked and felt more real than they had ever looked and felt before. And, and there is, and a- you definitely do have, like you do have video games that are used to like train soldiers. Like mm-hmm. it's definitely a, a, And it is worth interrogating now also the ways in which, like, depiction of actual weaponry and guns in media, games, and otherwise now is, like, because it can be super hyper-realistic, it actually can lead to fetishization of guns and gun culture in a way that, like, can make it difficult when you want to come to the table about possibly limiting the number of them right and then in an american society yeah yeah and then in american society you're um you're just working against a culture that is extremely conservative when it comes to like nudity and sex yes but pretty permissive when it comes to to guns and violence sure sure and Um, so it, it it is cool to have a million guns in a game in a way that it is not cool to have like a single boob. <laughs> yes, it's very bizarre <laughs> and and really unfortunate. Um, and I think just here on overdue, we can come out in, in favor <laughs> of boobs over guns. Yeah, I think we could <laughs> boobs over guns. That's our platform. Um, real quick before we get out of here, I just want to. I think Lahane does a lot of little things very right, uh, or with a lot of craft. That surprised me along the way. Um, one example is the moment where Jimmy like finds out that his daughter is probably dead, but at least missing in a park, and he has to call his wife, who is at a Chuck E. Cheese for a first communion party, and they have to like get the person at the register to call her over the PA. How are you going to do communion at a Chuck E. Cheese? No, no, they do the first communion at the church and then go to the Chuck E. Cheese afterwards. pizza is (laughs) his flesh. That's the mystic pizza. This Diet Coke is his blood. No, that's not what it is. He bled for you. He, he... And behold, these to- these tickets, which you can use to get a spider ring. No, these um, tokens will help you rise from that night. No, it reminded know. me. Uh, it's that moment when in a, in fiction like this, where it's about solving a murder, and it's and often a lot of these are about like kids or or loved ones who are taken. There, the scene where the loved ones find out is always very memorable. Um, and this one I thought was very well done. The like awkwardness of the situation and the past, like the literal game of telephone that is happening. Um, yeah, you got you got to do something other than people just like break down, yes. crying. Like you've you've got to leave your own mark on that yeah. scene. Yeah. So, um, and then just to go back to one of the earlier quotes you shared from Lahane about the class and race stuff. Sure. Um, yeah. The guy who leads the homicide division has a quote that he's talking to he's talking to sean about how hard they're going to work on this case and he says trooper you know what i like even less than 10 year old black boys getting shot by gang work 
Gang war crossfire. 19-year-old white girls getting murdered in my parks. People don't say, oh, the vagaries of economics then. They don't feel a wistful sense of the tragic. They feel pissed and they want somebody to be led into the six o'clock in shackles. That's what they want because they're us and that's what we want. Yeah. And there's just a real, like, it's not presented as a thing that's going to, that these characters are going to fix or grapple with. It's just a reality of the culture they're living in that the reader can then go, hmm. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, that that is our culture. Yeah. Like, um, America has an opioid crisis now because white people are dealing with it. Yes, correct. I don't know. It, it's tough. So th- th- that's I guess- a bad cop out way to like no no but all of that to say that something i said earlier on was that this was like listen it's frustrating that this has not this conversation is still the same as it was in 2001 can we just say that how about that definitely for sure yeah i also that's what i think elevates this book from just another who who got murdered why who did it like i think this book does a pretty good job of in the beats where you're not just interrogating someone you are or even in those some of those beats you're getting little snippets of the world as Lahane sees it and he's calling him like he sees him and for the most part I think they land pretty true um and and helps uh helps I don't know elevate a, a what could otherwise be a generic murder mystery yeah um that's Mr. Griver. So if you've got questions for us uh, about this book, you can email them to at overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up on social, twitter.com slash overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod. Uh, a lot of folks reach out in the past week, including Jacob, Glenn, Jess, Ames, Marnie, Josh, Amy, Lisa, Graham, Gabriella, Elizabeth, Christine, and Dostoevsky? Not the real one. I Thanks, think. bud. Thanks, boy. It's nice to see you. Thanks, Theodore. I thought, Andrew. I thought you were dead. If folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? <laughs> they can go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there, we have links to iTunes, RSS, and Google Play. Always, you can subscribe to the show. If you subscribe in iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as it is, some, as it is sometimes called, rate and review us because it helps us rise in the rankings. And also, like we're at 825 right now. we just going for 1,000 now. Go for it. We're aiming for, for four digits. So please help us get over the top. And then also... Um, like we mentioned earlier in the episode, um, Craig read this book because one of our Patreon supporters recommended it. If you go to patreon.com slash overdue pod, you can find out how to recommend a book that we have to read and also how to get episodes of our show within a show, Stop Homer Time, before the normal public gets it. We are releasing one of those episodes pretty soon, though, Craig, right? Later this week, in fact. Later so. this week, we're going to cover, what is it, books four, five, six, seven, something yes. like that? Yes, yes, yes. Boy, it's a, it's, a, it's a time. What are you reading for next week, Andrew? Uh, for next week, I am reading The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Rock and roll. All right. Rock and roll. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. As always, um, your support is why we do the show. So keep giving it to us. We just want that attention. <laughs> That's why we do it. And until we talk to you next week, try and be happy. Try to be happy. Just Whatever. try and be happy. <laughs>
That was a HeadGum Podcast.